if we're going to build back better from this crisis, part of that has to be preparing ourselves for other crises that are going to come again in future. And I think you're absolutely spot on. I think a basic income gives that fundamental security. It gives that flexibility and an ability for people to make choices around how they respond to a crisis like this. This is the Wicked Problems Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ostreich. Today I'm sitting down with Jamie Cook. Jamie is a contributor to WPC book number two, What Do We Do After the Pandemic, as well as the head of RSA Scotland. Jamie, could you introduce yourself? Thanks a lot. And yeah, great to be here with you. Yeah, so as you said, I'm Jamie. I I live just outside Glasgow in Scotland, uh, and I lead the RSA's work principally here in Scotland. Uh, So working with our fellows, working with a number of partners and and different groups across the country, Uh, but also more and more on a global level. So I think it's a really exciting time in Scotland as we kind of try to find our place as a small nation in the world. So a lot of my my opportunities now are around collaborating with other groups in the US, uh, Canada, Finland, across Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand and and elsewhere. And I think it's really exciting seeing that some of that's around these big ideas. So, you know, basic income that we're going to discuss today and which has picked up such a global uh, energy just now. But also, I think around that that learning, that connection, you know, the RSA is an organization with over 30,000 fellows around the world. And I think it is that exciting idea of bringing together people and ideas. Goodness me, we, we need more than ever as we face the, the kind of global challenges that we've witnessed over the past year and, and beyond. As an RSA fellow and global ambassador, I can say I'm highly supportive of that work. I, I love the work you do with communities. It's really good stuff. Let's move on to your chapter. Can you tell us what you were trying to get at with it? Yeah, well, I think obviously within the chapter, and I talk about resetting our, our foundations, whilst I talk about basic income as a, as a policy idea and a potential policy response, I think what's really struck me is this idea of how our social contract has been frayed and, and frankly, in a lot of cases, deliberately undermined over recent decades. Now, I know that social contract can look very different in different countries and different political contexts. And of course, I'm, I'm locating some of it in my own experiences here in Scotland and, and the United Kingdom. But I think in general, that idea of the relationship between citizens and individuals and the state has been worn down over recent decades. I think the growth of populism, of the kind of othering of people, so whether that be immigrants, whether it be people fleeing climate change induced disasters around the world, whether it be around kind of breakdown of some of the big international networks that we've seen. So Britain's membership of the European Union being a, a critical example of that on, on this side of the water. I think it really feels to me as if we've got to a stage in the 21st century where change is needed, and yet actually a lot of the mechanisms, the foundations, that the relationships for those changes are not as strong as perhaps they once once were. I mean, in the UK, a lot of our thinking around the welfare state, around the relationship, that social contract, was created in that period around the Second World War. It was the Beveridge Report, which talked about the giants, the evils that the, the society faced. It was about that shared suffering during World War II and so on. And for me, those challenges still exist, but they've evolved, they've adapted, they've changed, and our structures haven't evolved and adapted to respond to them. And so I think what I was trying to do was was just start to uh, highlight and, and grasp the fact that those that relationship, that contract has been freed, 
But I don't believe that it can't be repaired. And I don't believe that we can't create something that's fit for purpose for the 21st century. And for me, a, a basic income is something that is not a silver bullet. It's not magically going to solve all our problems, but it can be a foundation. It can be a building block for us to create that new social contract on top of. And I think the more I've worked on that idea, which I've been doing for a few years now here in Scotland, but also in terms of that global discussion, the more convinced I've become that it is an essential part of that foundation. And the experience of the COVID-19 pandemic over the, the past year and a half or so I think has shifted that debate considerably and, and really reinforced the importance of that kind of security that it can bring to people's lives. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of the idea. We have problems in the U.S. with evolving circumstances that we respond to with systems that were created hundreds of years ago. People look at today's challenges, but we look to rules that were set in place for different needs. I don't see how we can fix our problems by continuing to do that. I think there's value in looking at our history and what was valued in those times, but we also need to put appropriate value on where we are and what we know today to move forward in a better way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I think so much of that is kind of entrenched power and, and knowledge that means you don't want to change because maybe you'll lose a bit of that. That early stage of the pandemic, the talk was about building back better. It was about creating a new world. Suddenly, basic income, uh, you're not just in Scotland, across the world, went from a few years ago, it was a completely fringe idea that very few serious people were talking about to, you know, now in Scotland, we have a, a first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, who has said it's an idea whose time is to come, that she would deliver tomorrow if she could. She, she doesn't have the power to do so at this stage. You know, but it has really shifted four out of our five main political party leaders in Scotland publicly said during our recent elections that they support basic income as a, as a policy. So it's been a huge shift. But what I've noticed over the last couple of months in some countries where generally the ones that were richer, we've you know maybe hoarded some of the vaccines, we've had access to them quicker, is that what is now being talked about as building back better is actually building back to exactly where we were before, but maybe framing it in a language of change. And I think it is that entrenched power, that opportunity. And it comes from a number of different places. I mean, one of the things that strikes me in a Scottish context is, you know, I, I love Scotland. I'm very, very passionate about Scotland. We're an incredibly paternalistic country. We have a long tradition of telling people what to do and how to deliver it. And when I give talks on, on basic income in Scotland, I usually go on the basis, it must be a successful talk if by the end in the questions, someone's called me a communist and destroying the welfare state. That, you know, we've had a big pushback here from the left because actually, as soon as you talk about autonomy, about choice, about people making decisions in their own lives, there's a fear of, Thatcherism in the UK, you know, that kind of right wing individualism of the 80s. And I think for me, I've, I've never understood this dichotomy between you're either for the state or you're for an individual. It makes no sense to me because we are individuals who are part of communities and families and networks who are part of something bigger that is our, our country, our society, and then part of something bigger, which is the world. And we see the impacts there. And so to me, surely you should be for both. And something like a basic income that can't exist unless you have something bigger. You receive that money because you're part of a society and a state that pays it to you. You are given the autonomy and the choice over how you use that to change your life. To me, that starts to create that balance between those two you know, supposed uh, contradictions. And I think that comes back again to these ideas of the entrenched power that we can see. I mean, obviously, there's been some incredibly powerful, some incredible pushback over the past year and a half, two years with Black Lives Matters, with um, you know, looking at the legacy of colonialism from a UK perspective, looking at some of the, the imbalances we have in, in across societies. 
And yet also we can see where entrenched power can be in lots of different perspectives. So it is around for uh, different parts of the political spectrum who are used to having control of levers of power. And I think when we start to push back against those, there's a huge opportunity for change, but it's a huge threat to people as, as well. And I think that's where we see, uh, you know, as you rightly say, some of this kind of desire to go back to the way things were. And not just from those who have the power, but sometimes from those who haven't, because they've been so used to being told what to do that it's quite a scary alternative to start to open up. And that's why it needs to have this connected approach. These are not individual standalone magic bullet policies. These are about creating foundations and networks of a growing, iterative, you know, human-focused network of a social contract that actually allows it to bring people with it rather than just being done to them or on their behalf. I wrote a chapter for an anthology a few years back that I called The Economic Shock Absorber. The idea was that instead of having to jump in with legislation the moment something bad happened, if you had basic incomes, you'd already have something there. You'd have this bad shock and a lot of people would get thrown out of work, but everyone still has their basic income. So instead of making up all of your income, you're trying to make up part of your income and you're not completely drawing on savings immediately. If we had one in place now, how do you think that would change the circumstances in the pandemic? Uh Massively so. And whilst the basic income, I think it's a policy that's that's useful on, on many different levels. That idea of it as a, a kind of pandemic preparedness approach, I think is is critical. What you have is if you know that's going to people directly, then apart from anything, you, you have the ability to vary that if you need to in response to a crisis like this very easily. You already know it's there. In the UK, we had the, the furlough scheme introduced. So this idea that people were paid to stay home effectively from a, a right wing conservative government that doesn't believe in spending public money. There was suddenly a huge outpouring of, of money. And yet, actually, that system was difficult to administer because you had very different contexts between different jobs. A lot of self-employed people fell through the cracks with that, and it showed up the, the failings in the social security system as it exists in the UK. You know, and if we're going to build back better from this crisis, part of that has to be preparing ourselves for other crises that are going to come again in future. And I think you're absolutely spot on. I think a basic income gives that fundamental security. It gives that flexibility and an ability for people to make choices around how they respond to a crisis like this. So when in early days we were telling people to to stay home, to, you know, lock down, businesses were shut. The deliveries of, you know, the big companies like Amazon continue during that time because if you're effectively a self-employed delivery person, do you have the ability to say no to that, even if the, the public health advice is that you shouldn't be doing it? And I think it showed again, you know, coming back to power imbalances in society that a basic income would give you that that basis that could at least allow you to make choices and that could allow the state and society to respond to these huge shocks in a much better way. So I think seeing it as that shock absorber, I think, is a really powerful and useful way of framing it. Because I think for me, the other thing that I always find very important about basic income is talking about it as an investment. Um, so, you know, within US circles, I know it's quite often there's a reference to kind of dividend uh, in Scotland and the UK, we, we sometimes struggle with the, the language around that in the same way. But I think that investment, you know, we invest in infrastructure, we invest in businesses. Why don't we invest in people? And by giving them that greater resilience and strength, hopefully during good times, then you put them in a far stronger place to also be able to be resilient during those those challenges, experiences that we see. So I think that's a really important framing for basic income and shows that it's not a knee-jerk response to a period of insecurity. It's a fundamental foundation and response to ongoing and future challenges that we will likely face over the coming years. You raise an interesting point there. 
Seems like our systems of government treat most people as low-wage workers with no possibility of creating value for society. So many people are put into a box where they're struggling to survive rather than going to do the things they would love to do and creating benefits for others. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's no surprise that kind of defining feature of a lot of social security systems in Western economies nowadays are about punishments and sanctions. And that's because the only way that you can get people to take these, you know, horrendous jobs is by forcing them into to doing so. Under the system in the UK, for you to move off the benefit system into employment, you can be facing a marginal tax rate of, you know, between 65 and 90 percent. Now, none of us accept that kind of tax rate on our earnings. And you would be economically crazy to say, I'm going to move from a benefit system into this work when you're going to be punished in that way. So, of course, therefore, it has to be through the removal of that. It has to be through the, the sanctions and, and the pushing of people. I mean, we've seen it, uh, hypocrisy. And, you know, we're all part of this. In the UK, we've, we've stood outside at the beginning of the pandemic clapping frontline workers instead of giving them pay rises or working conditions. You know, we, we've talked about how fantastic our supermarket workers are and, and you know they, these are people who've gone out for minimum wage to keep us stocked with food and and looked after and yet we, we've carried out research at the RSA that you know it's no surprise to anyone show the looming impact of automation and AI on those very jobs so uh, you know I, I'm with you I think basic income will be a, a real push against those jobs that we don't value just now because actually if you give people enough security and opportunity to make choices to to work elsewhere then you're going to have to improve conditions pay or both for some of those those terrible jobs our, our time of speaking just now you know the, the ipcc has just released its you know incredibly sobering report into the the human impact on on the planet and what we face ahead of us finding a world where we support people to have more time for exactly, as you say, those positive societal contributions, frankly, for creative opportunities to, if we spent more time creating pieces of art or music or social interaction as opposed to consuming, then perhaps we would be addressing some of those challenges around the, the climate emergency. So I think it is about that reframing. It's about recognizing that the, the imbalance of power is, is so strong in the economy and it's how the economy has functioned. How do we then rebalance that? Well, it has to be by giving some power back to individuals to be able to, to make those choices. I was always struck, I gave a talk in Glasgow a few years ago, quite early on when basic income was you know, just starting to be talked about. You know when you give one of those talks where you, you don't know what you've done, but you realise everybody in the room really doesn't like you. And uh, the kind of arms were folded and, and the frowns were deepening. And it was mostly a collection of disability advocacy groups in Glasgow. And when we got to the, the questions and answers, and, and the room was was icy cold by this point. Someone asked, you know, was furious, quite rightly, because it was completely my my feeling. They said, this is disgraceful. How can you have a basic income for all of society, which for people with disabilities, they have individual needs that cannot be met within that. I was like, you know, I'm so sorry. It was because I hadn't explained it within the modeling. Uh, certainly models, I always talk about basic income and most models are described. Although, yes, you might roll in a lot of the existing uh, social security system into the basic income because you wouldn't need it. Disability support is individual. It's not societal. So, of course, you keep that as a separate. That was my feeling for not saying that. As soon as I said it, the room brightened and we were all friends again. But what struck me about that then was afterwards, people were talking about the idea of zero-hour contracts. So this has been a, a quite a big political hot potato in, in the UK around so contract a contract for work where there are zero hours guaranteed. So basically, you could work 35 hours one week, but you might get no hours the week after that. Now, 
they're seen as really negative because, of course, what it tends to do is give a lot of power to, to employers. You don't have no consistency. You don't know what work you're going to get. You have to take what you're given. But interestingly, for the for quite a few of the disability advocacy groups, they were saying, well, actually, a, a, a zero-hour contract, if it was a fair two-way process, could be really powerful for their, their members because actually you had people whose disabilities meant that maybe one week they could work 35 hours, but the next week they wouldn't be able to. But what was lacking just now was the underlying security to allow them to be able to have that flexibility. And it, it made me think that, you know, in some ways, I don't think necessarily a basic income means that you kind of overthrow the, the existing capitalist system completely overnight. But I think it, it can humanize, it can change, it can rebalance the power within that. And then that perhaps allows us to, to change to a, a better, more sustainable, focused economy moving forward that isn't just about growth at the expense of people on planet, but actually is about harnessing the, the skills and creativity that everybody has. I had a similar experience early in the pandemic. Once that project got going, I would sometimes go several weeks without having any work. I have enough cushion that it wasn't a big problem for me, but imagine what that's like when you're living paycheck to paycheck and suddenly there's no paycheck. One of the pushbacks we get about basic income why? Because obviously a, a basic income, you know, has no conditions attached to it. So it's not about how much money you've got or, or how much you earn. Now, obviously, most systems, you would part of it through income tax. And so therefore, you know, higher earners will pay back more than they receive. But I think there's a really critical thing around universality to me is a very important concept anyway, because it, it connects us back together. But it also recognizes that economic insecurity is far higher up the food chain now than it, I think it used to be. You know, so that idea of you said there you maybe had enough cushioning, but how, how long is that cushioning going to last? The difference is some people it might be able to last a little bit longer. But I mean, we did research in the UK from an RSA perspective, and I think it was around half the population would really struggle with one sudden payment because actually people don't have savings. They You can even be in quite a high paid job, but if your job disappears, you know, you're usually bound into mortgages and, and costs and so on. Actually, your insecurity behind it is, is quite significant. And so I think recognizing that need for security for people to be able to, to respond to that in different ways. Uh, as I say, this isn't just for a small, tiny part of, of the population that is most disconnected and most uh, disadvantaged. This actually is for a significant part of the population. It certainly is a potential in terms of the risks that they could face. And that I mentioned the furlough scheme in the UK. Now, part of what that's done, I think, and I fear, is it's delayed job losses from the pandemic and from other factors like Brexit that would have been happening earlier. But the, the scheme has allowed some businesses to say, look, and I, I know this from talking to, to folk, you know, it's maybe allowed businesses to keep people on a bit longer because they're not paying the money. But once the furlough scheme disappears, then the risk of a kind of, you know, job drop off is, is considerable. And I think, you know, you do then see a lot of people who, through the system we have, have been encouraged into, to, you know, economic insecurity that they're maybe not even sure they actually had. And it suddenly could be quite a shock to the system. So I think that importance of the basic income is that recurring security for all of us, I think, is, is really critical. I imagine there'd be a massive benefit in terms of reduced anxiety society-wide if people knew that 20, 30, 40% of what they made would be there no matter what next month, and they wouldn't have to suddenly go straight into savings or credit cards. There was a study a few years back that looked at Americans' ability to, to absorb an unexpected $400 expense. I think it was around 40% of Americans that couldn't handle that. It's in the wealthiest country in the world, that's just disturbing. Uh, absolutely. And it, it undermines our ability for 
everything that we're trying to achieve. You know, it, it doesn't create a strong economy. This is the the irony. You know, so many of the internal failings that we're seeing in the same way that the, the social security system is based on sanctions and punishment and conditionality don't work you know so it's not even just that it's you know frankly morally wrong it's also usually completely self-contradictory and and you know other than a a very small group who you know make enough money that they can you know fly phallic uh, spaceships into space you know um it's it's not it's not benefiting you know a lot and this goes back again to what you were saying earlier around language and conceptualization of something like a basic income you know we've seen this cross you know, all political contexts, you know, it's what politicians do is, is find ways to frame the, the completely, you know, reprehensible or, or unimaginable in ways that suddenly gets taken up as, as public understanding. You know, so I know in the US there was that whole discussion around the framing of the death tax for, you know, inheritance tax was was political genius, you know, in the sense of completely misrepresenting what the policy was going to be. And we've seen similar here where, you know, things are sold for the good of people that, you know, well it's, it's not the case but i think that also is a call out then to to those of us across the political spectrum who who are not necessarily interested in that kind of populism of, of either left or right i think you know to actually start taking some of that discussion back again to i think there's been too much complacency I, you know, certainly i would hold myself up in this that you know i i know what the good stuff is and actually you take for granted that everyone else does too and i think it can't just be about talk. It's about proactively showing what a better, fairer society and economy could be. And that's where something like a basic income comes into, not as a, I've made this up out of nowhere and isn't it fun? Not as a, well, this will solve all our problems. But, you know, where I've, I find it resonates with people here in Scotland is when you just give it to them as an idea to play with. You know, just imagine, what, what would you do if you had this? What kind of impact might it have for you and for your family and for people, you know? And they'll come back with, you know, with worries. They'll come back with concerns. You know, I know the guy down the street who might just spend it on, on alcohol. Great, well, let's talk about that. What other services are needed to support that? Although the evidence shows that if you give that economic security alongside housing support and, you know, addiction support and all the rest, you'll actually see more positive outcomes. You also see that in power. You know, I, I always talk about... Um, Jessie Golem from, from Canada. So she was a participant in the Ontario basic income experiments that were disgracefully cancelled by, by the Ford administration when it came in Ontario. And she created a program called Humans of Basic Income. And I always highly recommend people because uh, it's just that uh, she's an artist who was, was part of the, the program herself, but she just captured some of the, the stories of what were happening to people, what people were going to do with this basic income. Uh, Evelyn Forger is Canadian uh, academic. She's done a lot of amazing work around she. She captures some of the stories as well of people who participate. And then it's that mixture of the the awe-inspiring and the heartbreaking. You know, people talking about they'd had their children taken away because the quality of their housing was so poor. They got left in the housing, of course. But, you know, so they didn't they were going to use a basic income as, you know, the deposit for their new flat so they could get their kids back. It was the people, you know, setting up their, their first business or retraining or, or changing their life circumstances. And I think it's that kind of capturing of the stories of, of what people actually do fundamentally to me a basic income is about the fact of saying to society do you know what we trust you fundamentally we trust you whereas i think our structures just now say we don't trust you unless you're incredibly wealthy it's funny that we're question whether they're going to be lazy when they've got too much money to live on but for the rest of society you will only get support if you jump through the hoops if you prove to us beyond all reasonable doubts that you deserve this 
Uh, and I think when you put trust back in people, it's funny, I, I, I used to say this and I would say, you know, I know it makes me sound idealistic, almost as if I was apologizing. I just think, now, do you know what, stuff that. I believe when you put trust in people, people respond to that trust when they believe it's, it's genuine. The Finnish experiment around basic income, one of the biggest things that came out of that was the idea that people had increased trust in each other and their communities and in society because actually they believed that they were being treated like adults. They were being treated with that opportunity to make choice in their lives. And I think that to me is it's such an exciting space. If we're going to create a better world, if we're going to build back better, fairer, stronger and create something that is sustainable but also is more resilient and creative for the challenges and opportunities we'll see in future putting trust back at the heart of that is the fundamental issue that we've had uh, frankly stolen from us in a lot of cases and i think there's a real imperative for all of us to start to refine and and reframe that trust to bring people with us in, in making that change how do we get across these ideas to people you're sharing these ideas it sounds like you're doing a lot of face-to-face speaking or meeting with people I do a lot of writing and working with organizations that are trying to help people see things from different perspectives. What do you think works best for getting people to turn around on something that's really important? So I think certainly from a Scottish experience, I think there's been a huge aspect that this debate has been led by civic society, not by politicians. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, four out of five party leaders, majority of Scottish parliamentarians support basic income. You need the politicians on board to deliver, but this hasn't come from politicians. So although, you know, I first got involved in basic income in 2016. It was a fringe event idea at that point. You know, there'd been a couple of, Ailsa Mackay was a a well-known Scottish economist. She had done a lot of fantastic work uh, before she sadly passed away, particularly on basic income and feminist economics. Annie Miller was another economist who'd done some work on it, but it really wasn't mainstream. Scottish Green Party were supporters, but other than that, it, it didn't have a huge amount of traction. It was when we started getting civic society, so it was, you know, community groups, it was activist groups. It was, you know, frankly, uh, in the beginning, we were getting quite a lot of young people who had been involved in the the pro-independence campaign for Scotland who had seen that lose. And so we're still wanting to, for them, create a better Scotland and they didn't know where to do it. And this was a space to channel that energy. Where it involved, if you like, politicians, it was in a small piece. It was very much place-based. So, you know, uh, politicians in Glasgow who said, this would make a difference to my city, not because I'm a member of X, Y, or Z party, but because I'm looking at low. And it was that local groundswell. And I think you can see, you know, you can see that in the US that yes, there's been a big driver for the debate has been the big tech entrepreneurs who inevitably kind of usually describe basic income in ways that are utterly wrong and that you completely feel are, are kind of self-centered and, and self-focused. Yes, it's had impact from politicians, you know, Andrew Yang obviously has had an impact in terms of his his run for the, the presidential nomination. But actually, again, it's it's place-based work that's really driving this forward. You know, the mayors for guaranteed income, the stuff in Stockton, you know, but those longer term uh, areas, it's about getting civic society to lead. And I think one of the things that's really struck me, uh, and again, I, I, I don't think this would be massively different in, in, in the US, is because of the kind of polarised situation we have around politics and you know in scotland a lot of that's focused through the constitution but you know through through party politics as well i find that policies tend to be a very instant thing so you know i'll meet you and i'll say right okay here's this idea of basic income do you support it or do you not if you support it stand in that corner if you don't support it stand in that corner you know, your 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 vision's stuck you know you're not going to meet the other folk go away and just keep talking to each other and you know and we know social media feeds into that and so on and it feels like that's what a lot of policy goes just now what we find with basic income is 
you know, like I said earlier, give it to people to play with. So the people who are who are skeptical, I find ask generally, you know, unless they're coming from a very strongly ideological perspective where it's just, you know, people will be lazy and nothing you could say, no evidence you could give me would, would change that. Generally, a lot of the, the skeptical or the questions that people ask are vitally important. You know, and they're usually to do with the fact that this isn't an isolated magic policy. It needs other support around it. So you give them space to play with that. You also find that usually they come back with where they could see the positives, you know, where they could see with a bit of, a, you know, enhancement, this could have a positive impact. And likewise, we find this, you people who could be really enthusiastic will still come back to you, though, going, you know, I love it, but I have a concern about this. Or is this the best way to use money right at this time? Or, you know, is it a stepping stone towards it? And I think giving that space, finding uh, kind of opportunities to allow people to just challenge, explore, ask questions, takes it away from the language that becomes exclusionary. So, you know, I can only take part in this if I've got a master's in public policy or whatever nonsense, you know, because I use a certain language that doesn't make sense to anyone, including you know myself or whatever. Uh, I think it's that, it's that actually taking ideas out to people and allowing them to, to look at those and see what they might mean for them. I think that's where the, the stories and the human impact starts to become really powerful. It's not easy, but I think even in different cultural and, and national contexts, we can see how starting to do that with small groups. You know, the RSA, we always use the Margaret Mead quotes, the, the sociologist about never doubt that a small group can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. I think there is something quite empowering about that, that you can actually move quite quickly. And I think... The, the COVID pandemic, certainly here in Scotland, I would say has shifted the debate by at least five years. We went into pandemic in a situation where, you know, the first minister would say, yeah, I like basic income's interesting, but, you know, it needs tested, it needs piloted, it needs think, thought about for years to now, yeah, let's, let's get cracking with it. And I think having those dialogues, having those conversations, building up the trust with groups who realize you're there to listen to them and not just tell them what the answer is, I think that shouldn't sound really radical, but actually sounds quite different to an awful lot of the politics that we see just now from across the, the uh, political spectrum. So finding a way to properly bring the, the lived experience, the learned experience, the, the understandings that people have about their places, about their communities, I think is, is essential for making uh, any of these into reality. I think it might be interesting to ask people to look back at their life through the pandemic and say, how would it have changed your life if throughout the, this entire time you knew this check was coming? And if you knew it was coming, if you lost work, you'd probably still be looking for work and ways to make ends meet. But how would it affect your anxiety levels and your ability to keep up with your bills? A hundred percent. I think that's, that's a really important work piece of work that needs done. I think the other thing that feeds into that is that suddenly an awful lot more people have had experience of the social security system. So, you know, we've been fed the, the media line for years about scroungers. People and benefits are just cheats. Again, it doesn't matter if tax fraud and avoidance is a far bigger issue. You know, it's the they're destroying society. Benefits are overly generous. It's refugees and immigrants that are stealing. So suddenly you've got a load of people into the middle classes having to experience this system and realizing it's absolutely inhumane. It's absolutely inefficient and can't deliver what it's meant to do. And I think that gives you an opportunity to start to say, well, look, if the narratives have turned out to not be that true, how, easy, how much easier would it have been if you could have responded to it? The problem is that whilst, you know, that window of opportunity can open for you, as we've touched on already, it's amazing how quickly it can start to, to close. And particularly if any of us feel like we're going back to a more comfortable situation, then perhaps we it's easier for us to put to one side that insecurity that we maybe had hinted at for ourselves for a time. But I think it is around, as you say, 
getting people to think back. To, I know friends who they thought they'd probably be okay. Their job would probably be there or there was maybe five of them doing a job and probably four of them would still be in a job at the end of it. But the unsureness, that insecurity, just there in the back of their heads on a constant basis. I know it impacted on people's decisions around they wouldn't take furlough because the fear was if you go on furlough, you're never coming back again. So then they continue to work at a time when actually it would have benefited them and their family to have that space to support each other. So uh, I, I think that learned experience of, of the pandemic is going to be a critical one and, and certainly one that I think at the RSA and that other organizations we need to try and capture over the, the kind of coming months. This has been really great, Jamie. I'd like to ask the listener to take a step back and think about throughout the pandemic, maybe you've been okay, but think about people you know who might have struggled. How might it have changed their lives to have a meaningful basic income to rely on in these circumstances? What might it have done to their anxiety levels, as well as the potential for shame and such? Absolutely. It's an honor to be here. And I, I think, you know, the, the combination of ideas and provocations and creativity that you, you pull together is so critically important just now that, you know, I highly recommend everyone checks out the other chapters of the book as well. And, you know, certainly I'd be delighted and honored to, uh, to contribute again in future. Thank you very much, Jamie. Here's wishing you well. You too. Take care.